0: after spending a week out of town at the General Assembly of our denomination. And that's where I was last week. In St. Louis, I will say, in all of the years that I have gone to the General Assembly of our denomination, and it's starting to feel like quite a few of them, never once have we gone to Hawaii. (laughs) So, Cliff, you've you've given me an idea. I think I... (laughs) I might have to write a a letter to our new stated clerk and and suggest it. But Cliff's absolutely right. However lovely the the places may be on earth that we can go, and however delectable the feasts, in Christ we have far, far more. And we don't need to envy anybody. And there's something about the way the gospel puts earthly realities in proper perspective including the significance of this day. How lovely and how poignant that we gather for worship on the morning of July the 4th because we're reminded that however blessed and or challenged we may be when it comes to earthly realities and institutions and nations, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And nobody can take that away from us. So it's a good day to gather for God's worship. You can see in your bulletin that we're going to train our attention on Hebrews chapter 13. Especially verse 8 in that chapter. But I'll read the verses on either side of it as well. In part because we're going to to note those verses a little bit later as we make our way. So I'm going to read Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 7, down through verse 9. Listen now to God's Word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them." Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for it because we are keenly aware of how much we need it, in need of the light that it shines upon us and the way that we should go. So we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to behold that light, to behold wondrous things in your law, to behold Christ who is revealed here, and we pray in his name. Amen. I'm sure you've heard the expression, all good things must come to an end. All good things must come to an end. How depressing is that? all good things must come to an end. Thankfully, it's not true. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But like most expressions, that one didn't come out of nowhere. People say all good things must come to an end because they found that many of them do. Perhaps in their experience, all of them have. That's why the expression exists. That's what we find to be true in many cases. So a family vacation comes to an end here in the summer, in the season of family vacations. And even while you're enjoying it, you've got to push out of mind the thought that it's coming to a close. And you you try not to count down the days until you've got to pack up and go home. Or an activity that you've enjoyed comes to an end because you find that your body just isn't up to it anymore. Or a relationship comes to an end. One that you assumed would not. You thought they were your BFF, your best friend forever. And it turns out they were your BFFN, your best friend for now. The point is, life is like that. That's why the expression exists. All good things must come to an end. Over and over again, what we find in this life is that in one way or another the glory goes away. But the good news today is that that's not true in every case. There are exceptions, and today we're going to have before us the most glorious exception of all. Jesus Christ is wonderfully, preeminently exceptional when it comes to the rule that glory fades away. Because His does not. And that comes through right here in this verse. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If you flip over to the back of your bulletin, yes, that's where it's to be found. You'll see the outline we're going to follow here this morning. We're going to think a little bit about what this verse means And then about the wonder of it, what's said here about Christ, and then finally we'll think a little bit about the application of this verse, how it touches down in our lives, and it most certainly does. So the meaning of it, the wonder of it, the application of it. So we'll start with... The meaning of this verse. It's not a technical theological statement, but there's wonderful theology in it. And it's worth our time to pause, to linger over it, and to unpack it. So, what does it mean to say this about Jesus? Well, first of all, it means this. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same when it comes to who He is. He's the same when it comes to who He is. Th- think about what we believe about Jesus. We believe that He's God and man. As the Son of God and His divine nature, He is unchangeable with a divine unchangeability. And now He's united to a true human nature. And He always will be looking as far forward into the future as the eyes of faith can gaze. And that's worth underlining. The Son of God uniting Himself with a true human nature in the incarnation, that was not a temporary arrangement. Jesus did not shed His humanity when He was raised from the dead, or when He was exalted into heaven. Or even when He comes back at the end of the age, He will not shed it then either. In the everlasting world to come, He will still be the Lamb. So our shorter catechism asks the question, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And the answer comes back, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person, comma, forever. Period. Forever. That's mind-blowing, But it's true. He's united now to a true human nature, thanks to the Incarnation, and He always will be. What that means, among other things, is that Jesus will forever and ever be capable in His human nature of gaining new experience in time, because that's just part of what it means to be human. That'll be true of us. We get that. Well, insofar as he remains the God-man, it must be that it will be true of him. And understand, that's good news. That's great news. We shouldn't be disappointed that he hasn't shed his humanity and that he never will. We can hardly grasp it. But it's great news because what that means, among other things, is that forever and ever... We will have a king and friend who in his human nature shares with us what it means to be wonderfully, gloriously human. It's wonderful news that he'll always be that, at the same time that he'll always be the Son of God who in his divine nature transcends all limitation. It's perfect That he is exactly who he is, and that he always will be God and man, truly God and truly man forever. So we start there. He's the same when it comes to who he is. And then, second, we can say this he's the same when it comes to what he's like. There's that as well his character his perfect holiness and his tender mercy, his searching insight and his impeccable wisdom, his patience when we talk to him in prayer and his truthfulness when he talks to us through the word, his resolute commitment to his Father's purposes and to his Father's people, all that makes Jesus so lovely, that he will always be. And you don't have to wonder and worry that you'll wake up tomorrow and find that he's diminished even just a little bit in terms of what he's like. Bring to mind somebody who's been a good friend to you. Isn't that one of the things that makes that person a truly good friend? The fact that you've been able to count on them to be constant in their character. Jesus is like that. He's constant like that. You don't have to wonder and worry from one day to the next which Jesus you're going to get. I'm a, I'm a tennis fan. I suppose it's on the brain these days, thanks to Wimbledon. There are some tennis players who are not like that. A guy who can be even-keeled in one round in the tournament, and he wins, and then he's throwing rackets at the umpire in the next round before he's disqualified. And so what do the commentators say before his next match? They say something like, we'll just have to see which version of him shows up today. What a terrible thing that might be said about you. We'll just have to see which version of him shows up today. And you probably know people like that. People who are so lacking in constancy that between Monday evening and Tuesday afternoon, who knows what you're going to get. Who knows which version is going to show up. Jesus Christ is constant in his character. What he's like is what he was and what he is to come. And you can count on it. So there's that as well. He's the same when it comes to what he's like. And then one more. He's also the same when it comes to what he is For us. And by that I mean. His sufficiency as a savior. Again you don't have to worry. That you're going to wake up tomorrow. Or or someday down the road. And discover that he can't quite cut it anymore. And meet your deepest needs. It will always be true in this life. That we can look to Christ for all that we need. That we can look to him for forgiveness when we fail him that we can trust in Him for strength, to love Him and grow in that love, that we can rely upon His Word to guide us and guard us. For that matter, it will always be true in the life to come that our being united with Him, with that unbreakable bond, that will give us citizenship and standing in that world. Even after sin and misery are long gone, we'll still have Him. To be all that we need. Even in heaven he'll be able to say, I will never leave you nor forsake you, as it says in this same chapter, Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in that world we will believe him with perfect joyful trust. He's the same when it comes to what he is for us. And, and there too we can contrast that with our experience in this life. That's not always our experience when it comes to earthly helps. The guitar shop in Pittsburgh where I bought my first guitar not too long ago overnight, I think literally overnight, the shop closed its doors, boarded up its windows practically vanished even though the building is still sitting there on Castle Shannon Boulevard. People had dropped off equipment there And guitars, probably expensive guitars, to be serviced and repaired, this place that people had gone to and looked to and trusted in, trusted in in times of need for years, vanished overnight, doors closed. That happens too. It happens sometimes that we place our trust somewhere In something or in someone, and then overnight it's gone, and we're left high and dry. We're left wondering, where does that leave me now? Where do I go now for what I know I need? But not with Christ. We can go to him and look to him, and trust in him in times of need for years, for a lifetime of years, and we can know that he will never, ever close his doors to us so that we're left high and dry wondering, where do I go now? We'll never have to start over with another Savior like we're handed, when we're handed over to another doctor and we've got to tell our medical story all over again and bring the new one up to speed No. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So in all of these ways, who he is, what he's like, what he is for us, he's the same. Yesterday and today, July 4th and forever. So that's the meaning of this verse. There there we unpack it. What, what, What does it mean to say this about Jesus? Now, second of all, I want us to bask in the wonder of this verse. To to stand in awe of the fact that this is true of him. And shouldn't theology always lead us there? We get a handle on what God's word says and what it means. And shouldn't it rightly drive us to our knees in wonder? One way to do that is to go back over in our minds some of the most outstanding moments in Jesus' own life all along the way. Because as you make your way through His life recorded for us in the Gospels, there are moments that you can bring to mind when you might think, well, surely He changed then. But He didn't. So going all the way back to the Son of God coming into the world when He took to Himself a true human nature in the Incarnation, even then the Son as divine Son stayed the same. Even then, in that moment, in the fullness of time, the Son of God still was, as divine Son, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That had not changed. He had not changed. He had united to Himself A finite nature. That was new, but as divine son he had not changed. And then, fast forwarding a bit, when Jesus was a boy. And he was, as Luke tells us, increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, even then, when he was learning and growing, even when he was changing. As a boy who was growing in his human nature, still there was a steadiness. There was a steadfastness. There was a consistency about who he was, about what he was like, and about what he was destined to be. Fast forwarding again, when the man Jesus launched his public ministry at age 30, even then he stayed the same. He didn't alter his convictions and his commitments simply because he was going public. Like a candidate for office who takes on a different persona when they launch their campaign or who reverses his policy positions after he wins the primary because now he's told it's time to pivot for the general election. Not so with Jesus. And then when he went to Jerusalem and faced the fiercest trial that anyone has ever known, even then he stayed the same. Didn't bail out on his convictions and his commitments as a way of avoiding that trial or possibly dialing down how much it would hurt the intense suffering of it. And then one more, when Jesus was exalted into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, and all things were placed under his feet and his reign, even then he stayed the same. Here, too, we see how wonderfully different Jesus is from what we offer encounter among sinful men and women. With us, it's often the case that power changes people, it goes to their head, puffs them up, Makes them absorbed with self and uncaring about others. Not so with Christ. He came into possession of all authority in heaven and on earth. Now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And there, right now, he exhibits the same sort of mercy and patience with which he dealt with needy sinners here on earth. Power did not corrupt him. Power only adorned him. And then one more. I said the last one was the last one. One more. When Jesus comes back in the end, and he's ushered in the world to come, even then he'll stay the same forever. Now, to be sure, there are going to be things in that world that are very different from this age now, thankfully so. In the world to come, he'll no longer be a king at war, leading armies in battle the way he is now. In the world to come, he'll no longer have to save us from our sin in any way, the way he does now, but he will be the same. In the world to come, we'll know him forever as the same Savior that we're getting to know right now. So all of those moments along the way in his own life... Just when you think, surely he changed then, he didn't. And thank God that he didn't. Another way to to feel the wonder of this is, is to go back over in our minds not just his own life recorded for us in the Gospels and his ministry. But taking a step back, over so many moments throughout the Bible when, in one way or another, glory didn't last. Because there's a lot of that in the Bible. Plenty of those moments. And and that, too, provides a helpful point of comparison for us here. Moments along the way throughout the Bible when, in one way or another, glory faded. Or went away. Whenever I think about this, I think of poor Ichabod in First Samuel chapter four. At that point, the people of God have been defeated by the Philistines. The Ark of God has been carted off in the hands of the Philistines. And in those awful moments, the daughter-in-law of Eli gives birth. And we're told she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the Ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. Her father-in-law and her husband had both died. And so she names her son Ichabod... To mark the moment. Because it's a name that means something like, Where is the glory? And now he's marked with that name for the rest of his life. How would you like to be that boy? Who's got to live his entire life with a name that serves as a reminder that the glory went away. It's a tough calling for a kid. And for a man who continues to own that name, the glory had departed, and he's given a name that marks it. And then keep going in 1 Samuel. I suppose this is on the brain because I'm preaching through 1 Samuel for our congregation in Fairfax lately. Think about Saul in 1 Samuel. What does Samuel say to King Saul, Israel's first king, in 1 Samuel 13? He says, you've done foolishly. This is when Saul is failed the lord you've not kept the command of the lord your god with which he commanded you for then the lord would have established your kingdom over israel forever but now your kingdom shall not continue what a stinging word that is but not unfair for saul to be told oh what might have been but now it shall not be your kingdom shall not continue i mean you think about saul this guy This guy looked like he had it all. It wasn't just that he was tall and strong and good-looking, though he was all of that, but it was more than that. It was deeper than that. He enjoyed the favor of God. He was anointed with the Spirit of God, and so in his own way as king he reflected the glory of God, and he lost it as king. The glory departed. For all we know, Saul was a truer Ichabod than Ichabod himself ever was. It's true that God then gave David to Israel, a man after God's own heart, but paused long enough over Saul to weep over Saul. He reflected the glory of God, and then, as king, he lost it. The glory departed. And and then you can keep going from there. David himself ascends to heights that nobody in the Old Testament had reached before him and then he falls into such spectacular sin that it practically ruins his household for generations. And then David's son Solomon goes from the heights of internationally renowned wisdom into the deepest depths of spiritual and moral folly To the point that Solomon, who wrote so many proverbs, became a kind of living proverb about what it looks like when you lose your way. And then, in the generations after that, you know, every once in a while in the Old Testament, you'd have a good and faithful king, and everything was great, but then he'd lose his way too. Or he'd be toppled. Or he'd finish well, but of course he'd be toppled by death, and then his son was awful. Once more, same as before. All of these different fadings. And here's one more. In the Bible, sometimes glory fades not because of sin, but because that's the way God Himself designed it. That's the way it was supposed to work. In other words, there's some glory in the Bible that was right to fade because that's what God had in mind for the unfolding history of His people. And here I've got in mind the law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. That law was wonderful. That law was holy and righteous and good. And one of the best things about it is that God, in some ways, meant it to be temporary. That was the plan. God gave that law, those uniquely um, mosaic Prescriptions gave that law a temporary fading glory because the whole idea was that eventually a Savior would come whose glory would be permanent. That was the plan. And that's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. He says, If the ministry of death, carved on letters on stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, And that permanent glory shines from the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's why in the the book of Hebrews it says the law of Moses had served its purpose so that it's now rendered obsolete. Not because there was anything wrong with it. Quite to the contrary. But because it had perfectly served its purpose. It perfectly... So, as to be rendered obsolete, it's like a a sign at a construction site that says, Thanks for your patience, pardon our dust, something wonderful is in the works. Now, that sign does have a kind of glory about it. And by that I mean there's a kindness that's reflected in it, It's it's a nice thing to say to somebody, and there's a sense of expectation that it creates. So that sign has a kind of glory to it. But when that something wonderful has been built, you take the sign down. Not because there was anything wrong with the sign, but because now there's something glorious and permanent on site, and that's what you want everybody to see and to enjoy and to bask in. Take the sign down. So so the point is the Bible is full of what we might call fadings. Whether it was something fading because of sin or a glory that was fading because of God's perfect design. All of these different fadings. And brothers and sisters, that among other things is what makes Jesus Christ shine so brilliantly in our eyes. Because against that backdrop We see Him who is the same. Yesterday and today and forever. His is a glory that will never go away. That's the wonder of this verse. And hallelujah. Now finally, we've thought about the meaning of it. We've thought about the wonder of it. Now what about the application of it? How does this touched down in our lives, well, there are so many ways that this statement about Jesus ought to make a difference in the way we think and feel and live. One way of going about it is to look right here in Hebrews 13 at the verses on either side of our verse, right? We focused on verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But remember, I read for us verses 7 and 9 as well on either side of it. Look again at those verses. Verse 9. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 9, "...do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them." So, that's verses 7 and 9, and it's right in the middle of that that we have the statement we're we're basking in today, which is that Jesus Christ is the same. And it's noteworthy that this is where our verse, verse 8, is located... And I say that because this is one of those passages in the Bible that, well, by human wisdom you could easily imagine this passage without verse 8 in it. Verses 7 and 9 make total sense. If you just read them through without verse 8 in the middle, they go together well. They go together well as a positive word, verse 7, followed by a negative warning Verse 9. And Scripture often goes that way, right? We're we're being urged to live in a way that honors God and we're we're called to some positive duty and then on the heels of that we're warned of some sin that might lead us away. So, verse 7 is the positive word. Imitate the faith of the faithful who've taught you. And then verse 9, the flip side is the negative warning. Watch out so that you don't wander from that faith. And you could easily imagine Hebrews 13, going right from 7 to 9. But what God has actually given us is those two verses on either side of our jewel. Verse 8. And it matters. Because verse 8, our verse, is connected to both of them. Whatever the writer himself had in mind, The fact is the connections are there to be noticed in black and white right there on the page. And so we're standing on solid ground to notice those connections. So think about our verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about how it connects with verse 7. Where it says, imitate the faith of the faithful who have taught you. Think about the people in your own life who've been influential... IN YOUR CHRISTIAN LIFE. YOU WANT TO REMEMBER THEM? YOU WANT TO HONOR THEM? YOU you WANT TO DO JUSTICE TO THEIR INFLUENCE, INTO THEIR LEGACY? WELL, ABOVE ALL, HERE'S HOW YOU DO THAT. HOLD ON TO CHRIST. YOUR UNCHANGING SAVIOR. HOLD FAST TO CHRIST WHO'S HOLDING FAST TO YOU. REST IN CHRIST IN THE THOUGHT THAT HE'S UNCHANGING FOR YOU that, above all, is how you remember and honor and do justice to what those people have meant to you. It's like that scene in, in uh, Dead Poet Society. Remember that scene that the professor has his students gaze upon the photos of those who went before them from a long, long time ago. And as they're gazing upon those photos, he has them imagine that those forerunners are whispering to them now across the ages... Saying, Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Seize the day. Well, think about the people in your life who've been influential in your Christian life. What they were saying to you all along, what they're still whispering to you today, is hold fast to Christ, He won't change. He won't fail you. He won't let you down. They're whispering. They're saying, he never let me down, and he won't let you down either. Hold on to Christ. So there's that connection between our verse and verse 7, the verse before it. But then it also connects with verse 9, which is the verse after it. The warning. Which is, watch out so that you don't wander from the faith. How does he put it in verse 9? He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And he even says a little bit about what those strange teachings might be. He says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. It was true then, it's true today. There are these odd teachings that crop up now and then among Christians about what you ought to eat and what it will get you spiritually. In any case, the point is you're called to hold on to Christ, to hold fast to Christ, to rest in Christ, your unchanging Savior, in the face of all sorts of temptations to be led away from Him. The point is this isn't going to be easy. This isn't going to be a cakewalk. Here, we're camped out in chapter 13. Well, back at the beginning of chapter 12, the writer talks about the Christian life as a race that you've got to run. Well, we can put it this way. No Christian runs unopposed. This isn't going to be easy. The temptations are real. Jesus is the same forever, but you're facing the temptation, the danger, that you won't be the same. In the sense that you'll allow yourself to get distracted and drawn away by strange teachings, or false claims, or sin that seems to sparkle, whatever it might be. There's even the temptation to think that Jesus is no different from everything else and everyone else, and that He'll let you down like everything else. That's what I said when we got started this morning. Over and over again in a host of ways in this life we find that glory goes away and the temptation is to think that Jesus is no different. That itself is one of the false claims that can lead us away. That itself is something that we're up against, that relentless tide of disappointment because that can push us away from Christ. The temptation to think that there are absolutely no exceptions to that devastating rule that everything will let you down, including Christ. But Jesus is the exception to that rule. And I I love how the writer puts it there in in verse 9 it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. One of those delicious Bible understatements. It's good. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You bet it's good. It's very good. And it is that because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You can be confident that the strengthening grace you need is always going to be there for you. Because the one in whom that strength is to be found is the same yesterday and today and forever. Brothers and sisters, this is our Savior our unchanging Savior. So when if anyone ever tells you that all good things must come to an end, you can think to yourself, maybe even say it to them, at least think to yourself, not quite all of them. Not quite all good things. I know an exception. Yes, you do. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, and we rejoice in you, and we say that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. And that is the best news. Thank you that we get to start the week gathering around that reassuring truth, for we will head into another week. Indeed, we already have another week in which we will confront Fading and disappointment in different ways. In those moments, perhaps with tears on our cheeks, would you reach down and lift our gaze to your glory again and remind us that this is true of you? So may we honor those who have led us and set an example for us. So may we be wary of wandering. You are the same. Amen.